0: There is a great opportunity for us today to go to war. We're not here to play church. We're not here to placate our religious traditions. We're here to go to war. God has called us to this fight. And Paul has to bring some correction and instruction to the church in Corinth. So he's basically saying when he starts out here, he's saying, Remember Jesus? Remember the purpose that you got together? Remember the reasons for the church? And, and they're, they're fighting, they're arguing about how to dress in church, as we saw last week in the message titled Hair Like Jesus. See, they were afraid about their hair coverings and whatnot. And then he goes after them today about getting drunk on the communion wine, and he's going to correct them next week on their abuse of spiritual gifts. So there's a little bit of Christian MMA going on here. They're in the ring. And uh, so in 1 Corinthians 11:17, 17, look at what the Holy Spirit says through Paul to the church. He says, but in, following, in, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions... For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul gets confrontational right here, right away with this one. Um, You're fighting, again, stop it. You know, you're fighting about wearing a hat, when you pray, stop it. Now you're fighting over other things, stop it. And the reason for this was the root of it has two things. It's always pride, but uh, first is competition. Their competition was to see how much really they could drink before they came into church. And so they had communion every week and they shared the Lord's Supper was supposed to be the Lord's Supper, but it was overshadowed by their, their drinking so much and their food, and so there was food and wine and they took advantage of it, and they were eating a lot and drinking a lot. And I remember um, they all were, they're all fighting and they wanna be first in line, if you will. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 18, where the, the Pharisee and the tax collector are uh, praying and the, 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 ter- the tax collector uh, says, "'God, thanks that I'm not like this guy here, uh, the Pharisee says that I'm not like this tax collector, who were the most despised traitorist among the Jewish people. Thank God that I'm not like this guy. I fast, I brush my teeth, I, I uh, you know I do all these things. I pay my tithe, I do all this good stuff, and yet the tax collector, the poor sinner, the one that was despised and rejected, um, wouldn't even lift up his head, just hit his breast. The Bible says, saying, "God have mercy on me, a sinner." So. They have all this, I'm good type of attitude, and I've got this, I want to be first. And so being spurred on by healthy competition can be good, but their pride was in the way. The second thing that was going on is they were criticizing. The church was in big time criticizing each other. The criticisms were about the communion itself. And they had come to a place where the taste and the ritual was more important than what it meant. Criticism that's delivered in love, discretion, fairness, and good, we receive it, right? And that's good for our life. But if someone doesn't measure up to your standards, you know, and we don't cut them off. We need them. Rather, we, we accept who they are, where they are. We understand what's going on in their life. It's a really stupid comparison that they're making. Verse number 12. Don't worry, we wouldn't, in, in 2 Corinthians 10 12, let me read this portion to you. Sorry. That's not this one. There it is. There it is. Yeah. He says, look at how he puts it in here. He says, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are, but they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. In other words, don't be worried about what everybody else is doing and looking at them and and they seem to be lording it over everybody by saying, Lord, look at me. I'm so good. That doesn't matter. He said, people that measure themselves by themselves or compare themselves aren't wise. How many have been compared to what you think you should be? People have put you in that place, right? Maybe they've made you feel inferior or you don't measure up to their standards or you're not like their hero. And all of a sudden it doesn't work. They had what I like to call little Christian AIA going on. Not MMA or AA. Well, they had that too. But A-I-A, let me get to that. Verse 20, look what he says. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, Hungry. another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So they're getting together. But rather than sharing communion as a solemn remembrance of what Christ has done in a worshipful act, it's a potluck. And they have a potluck every Sunday. Now I'm not saying potlucks are bad. We're going to have one tonight. Praise God. Bring food. It's going to be good. And we're going to go and we're going to pray just like we do. It's going to be good. Food is good. I like food, especially chocolate food. I mean, chocolate's good. Pizzas, Italian food, Mexican food. Chinese, well, just about every kind of food, you know, is good, right? Um, so they're getting together and they're having this, instead of this, remember, they're having this potluck. They got, uh, you know, Mrs. Bush's beans over here, they've got Mrs. Rodriguez's flautas, a Schultz's sauerkraut, they've got Frank's pizza, Bill's chili. I mean, they've got it all going on and they're all fighting for who's first at the buffet. So they're all, bringing church, they're all bringing food to the church foyer, and everybody's trying to get there early, pushing their way to the front so they could eat first. When my boys were little, <clears throat> we, sometimes we would go out. Once a week, we went out to eat, and it was kind of a pr- special time, Sunday after church. We kind of keep that tradition today. And we go out to eat, and I couldn't, you know, these meals that they serve, sometimes they're so huge. So after, every time, the boys would secretly whisper among themselves that one word, dibs, and whoever said it first got to finish my food, and so we were waiting. And you know, they would always, you know, fight over that, but not really fight. But, but these guys are doing worse than that. They're getting drunk on the communion wine because it was alcoholic. They're overeating, both of which are sin. Scripture says several times that drunkenness is sin, but uh, overeating is something we don't talk about much. In fact, Jesus addresses it in Luke chapter 21. Verse 34 Be careful not to spend your time feasting, drinking, or worrying about the worldly things. If you do that, day may come on you suddenly, like a trap on all the people on the earth. Actually, Jesus is speaking much more than food here. Surfeiting the word there, the carousing, means indulging in my appetites excessively. We all have appetites. It could be a a food or a drink or maybe a myriad of other things. This world is pushing the overuse of our appetites all the time, right? This world pushes uh, misuse of, a, of our appetites with everything. There's this, just go ahead and indulge. Remember back in the day, we had cassette tapes? We are talking this morning in the foyer about somebody that, I think it was Dale saying, yeah, my dad, we had this, he had this record player and all these records. How many had records? Yeah, for young people, they were these flat, pieces of petroleum about that thick. Never mind. But cassette tapes were kind of big in my day. We had the eight tracks, you know, and and then we had the cassette tapes. And the cassette tapes were the thing, you know, that you played the songs over. You didn't have a choice. You couldn't pick the best of every album and put it on a playlist. I mean, we did. We got the side-by-sides. That was my goal, right? To get the side-by-side cassette so I could copy all my favorite songs on one tape. Now I just go on my phone and I pick the ones I like, put it in a playlist from all different artists, but you had to survive through all of the, the B and C list songs that the artists had to get to that one knockout song. occasionally there were artists that had several on the and you go, yeah, this is a great album. It's a great tape. Well, this wasn't like that. There was appetites and they, they just indulged in whatever. They picked the best every time. They went to the buffet. They picked all the sweets and carbs they could without any of the vegetables or proteins. And, and so we do this kind of all the time. They didn't have a problem um, in some other areas, but they definitely had a problem with this. Christians, idols, anonymous is what I call it. C-I-A. Um, AIA. Remembering Jesus' sacrifice. So verse 23 he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night he when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He stops him and he says, Guys, remember the reason you're here. Don't forget that you have come to this place for a purpose. And that purpose, in part, was war. But the biggest part right here he is telling them to remember is that you have come to remember and put the forefront Jesus above all other things. Friends, I don't care about people getting lifted up. I don't care about... um, uh, Building a new building, I don't care about uh, the greatest and latest in Christendom. The biggest thing that our concern should be as believers is lifting up Jesus. Lifting and exalting him. If he is lifted up, he will draw all men to him. To exalt him in every part of our life is the goal and mission of every believer. That is what God has called us to do. He says, remember this guy? It's like driving to work and forgetting why you went. Back when I was framing houses, it'd be like me driving up to a job site with a whole load of wood dropped off and a foundation ready to go. And me saying, why in the world did I get here? Why am I here today? I drove up to the job. I look at the, the wood and I look at the plans. I go, man, I don't even know. What was it? There was something I was supposed to do today. Like frame the house, Right? Maybe we forget that when we walk into the church. We come into God's house. It's like, hmm, why did I come here today? I come because my wife pressured me. I came because I'm going to see so-and-so. I came because th- this and that. I came because I'm just it's my tradition. I'm just going to go because it's in my tradition. Some of those things are not so bad. But the primary purpose of our gathering is to exalt Jesus. So why are you here today? Did you come to worship and honor the Lord? Is is being with Jesus the reason that we're here today or that you have walked in these doors, you got in your car, you got out of bed, you took a shower, hopefully, you brushed your teeth and you showed up, put on some deodorant and you came to church. What is the reason you came? Why are you here? To see a preacher? No, we know that's not true. You came because of Jesus. You are here because of him. Some very interesting things Paul puts in his instructions here. He says, I received my instructions from the master. I got them from Jesus himself. And he reminds him and us today that Jesus is the reason for them being there. Jesus took our place in betrayal. That's why we're here. How many have been betrayed? You know what that feels like. From your your friends on the playground to maybe a spouse or a, a parent. On the night he was betrayed, Paul writes. He reminds them of what happened. Jesus came into the city with this victory horde all around him. And cheering crowd, Judas, schemes his betrayal. The Passover he eats with his disciples. They're they're all there. Judas is confronted and he flees the room as the betrayer. Jesus is praying and the disciples are sleeping and the soldiers come. And Judas, the betrayer, kisses him. Malchus gets his ear put back on. and, And you know, just an uneventful night in the history books. Nothing much going on this stuff all of it our savior's sacrifice his willingness to be betrayed betrayal is probably the worst feeling nothing uh, that that they did could possibly did could possibly compare with this betrayal certainly not coming in the foyer eating just tons of food and casually walking into worship are you getting the gist the gist is he's saying, hey, you've forgotten why you're here. The savior of the world, the creator of all things has sent his own one and only son to the world. And he gave that one and only son on the sacrificial cross just for you and he shed his blood just for you, and he died just for you. He allowed himself to be put on that cross. He allowed them to push the crown of thorns into his head. He allowed them to pierce his side. He allowed them to, to drive nails in his hands and feet. He allowed them to pull the beard from his face. He allowed them. He was betrayed. That's why you are here. You are here because the lover of your soul, the resurrected king, the most powerful savior this world has ever seen, the only savior has loved you enough to do all of that for you and I. That's why we are here. Nothing compares to that. Nothing really to get get excited about. Just come on in, eat lots of food and get drunk. Paul's bringing them back. Remember that night, guys. On the night he was betrayed. And he uses that word. Gave his life for you. How ironic is that? Remember the kiss. How ironic is the kiss? A greeting. And yet, from one who lived with Jesus. You know what it's like to be betrayed. Think about the ways in life you've been betrayed. Then think about the ways in life you have punished someone for betraying you. Or at least considered it. We distance from them usually. We, we punish them by staying away. We, when we're betrayed, we, we want to make sure that they understand our disdain for them. We loathe any contact because they betrayed us. The disciples went to hiding. They distanced themselves we say horrible things about them we might get back by producing some malice and word choice words that describe them the pharisees were doing their best to discredit jesus remember that they said horrible things about him we make them pay When we've been betrayed, it's an easy way to go. It's a terrible path to go on. But if I were Jesus in that circumstance, it seems to me like the best thing to do, if I were Jesus and I rose from the grave, if Judas hadn't hung himself, but if I knew that this was going to happen, I'd take him, duct tape him up, beat him up, and throw him in a pond somewhere. Does Jesus do that? Perhaps the worst, we tell others, their secrets. Judas was with the Lord. He knew the Lord. And the betrayal involved him disclosing not only Jesus' location, but his disdain in some regard for Jesus. It had to be. There had to be some reason that he gave. But did Jesus distance himself from us? No. Did Jesus say horrible things about you? Unless you call my beloved horrible, no. Did Jesus make us pay by ignoring us and not trusting us ever again? No. Does Jesus today openly reveal your secrets to everyone? No. Betrayal is the worst because betrayal can only come through those that you are close to. I mean, if the guy at Olive Garden tells the guy guitar, guitar Center that I ate a piece of chocolate pie or chocolate, what's that called? Black tie moose cake at Olive Garden. I know these things. I have experience. If he tells, no big deal, right? But if my brother tells my wife, now we got a problem. Betrayal comes through those close to you. Your son or daughter tells their friends you are a prude. You hear from a friend that another friend said some horrible things about you 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 begin hearing from others about secret things that no one else is supposed to know how did you know that adultery malicious talk gossip betrayal betrayal, betrayal. being betrayed puts you on edge it, it's like you want to be sure the person you are willing to take a bullet for isn't the one behind the gun you you want to trust someone. So we really have two choices in life with relationships. One, we can, we can we can have no relationships at all. I understand this one. Just stay away from people. I have been the scapegoat for more people than I can count. Just as a pastor. It just comes my way. People think you should do this. People think you should do it. You should be more Pentecostal. You should be less Pentecostal. You just need to be. And I'm like, I'm just gonna follow Jesus. I you know, let's find revival. Let's dig in. Let's call on the Lord. You trust nobody. I totally get it. People experience love and healing, though, when you share your story, when you share your life with them. They begin to understand that you care and that there's a connection and they hear what you've gone through. And I know it's risky for some because maybe you've been hurt. It's the only way. But it's the only way really to to minister. The second option is to remember that Jesus has died for your betrayals. And the victory you will have, trusting him with your betrayals, will be an encouragement to others. I don't think there's any more healing than a healing from betrayal. And Paul starts out this whole section of instruction by, on the night he was betrayed. Verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant and my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So during the Passover meal, the person presiding over the meal would we'll take a piece of unleavened bread. Tortilla, but it's unleavened. They would take a piece of unleavened bread and they would make a statement about it. They would say a blessing over it. Because the bread had great significance. The bread represented affliction. And the reason, because the instruction that he gives of the Lord, from the Lord, he says, is because they left Egypt. The illustration is the Israelites had been under slavery uh, since the end of Joseph's rule. And when Moses was getting ready to lead them out of Egypt, they were given this instruction. They were told to make bread without yeast because it was they were going to be journeying a long time. And they had to make bread without yeast. And there's a couple of applications for that. But the most practical of the reasons was because bread without yeast doesn't spoil like or get moldy like bread with yeast. And so it had a practical application, but also that the the yeast causes the bread to rise, which, let's go there another day. They left Egypt. The Israelites had been under slavery, and they were told to take this bread without yeast with them, and the yeast would have, you know, done some things to the dough. So this was a journey of affliction, and the bread represented that affliction. It was to be made just plain, just regular, all on its own, simply. Now, moving 2 million people, about maybe a little more than that, out of Egypt was a big thing. Sometimes we think it's like the movie where we see a couple hundred people. in a row. But this was a big crowd of people. Some estimates up to 2.5 million. I, I, I don't know. But consider that Exodus, powerful, right? And they understood this bread without yeast. And so the person that, that served communion, as Paul was giving instructions to the Corinthian churches, said, he took this bread and he broke it. We need given thanks. He broke it. When we take communion, we have these little wafers here and you're going to be served one here in just a little while. But we sometimes we break them before we eat them. It's a symbol of the brokenness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The body the Bible says that his body was broken for us. It was to remind us it is to remind us of the affliction of Jesus. I don't have any fruit of the vine in this cup this morning, but the The wine represented blessing. In Exodus 24, and verse 8, look at the instruction given to Moses. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Hebrews tells us that his blood was spilled once for all, for all of us. The Bible opens with with this meal, Right? It opens with really the most horrific meal in the history of the world. It is the meal of meals. It is the damning meal. It is the meal that causes man to think what they want and go after what they want to go through the buffet first and get all that they can. It's the meal that causes death. And at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, we have this other meal. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I got to tell you, friends, that one day you and I are going to be at this meal, and it's going to have all kinds of stuff and lots of chocolate, I believe. Um, well, I, couldn't, I shouldn't say that. There are other applications. Nonetheless, I'm just saying it's going to be a celebration of being with the bridegroom. The first meal destroyed everything. The second meal is a celebration of the restoration of you and I and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A meal of not death, but life. Not damnation, but salvation. Not condemnation, but forgiveness of sins. Not weeping and mourning, but rejoicing and laughter. Because every tear that you've cried has been wiped away. Every pain and sorrow that you have will be gone. The loved ones that have gone on before you will be there. Christ, our Savior, will be there. And the Bible says we can eat of the tree of life and live forever. Not famine kicked from the garden, but feasting in the presence of God. And we partake together in the presence of the Lord, crying hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reign. I can't imagine a more beautiful meal than that. The kingdom of God is a huge feast. It's a huge feast. And the marriage supper of the Lamb is a continual celebration for God's people together forever with Him. This is amazing. So in view of the kingdom of God, sometimes we view it so small. But it is not. And and Christians, we kind of lack fun in this regard. I think we, we don't eat well and we don't drink well, maybe. I don't know. Don't read too much into that. Nobody accuses us of throwing too many parties. But one day, friends, we will not all simply eat a representation of the body and the blood of Jesus. We will be satisfied at the table of the Lord. This ends well. This ends well. More than bread and wine, communion is remembering. Look what he says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. What does unworthy mean? It means that you have not accepted Christ. You do not believe in Jesus. Receiving this emblem, this, uh, the bread and the, the juice that we're going to hear today in just a few minutes, it, it, it's something that a believer understands. And when we receive it, we, we apply it to our, a lifestyle of worship. We, it is part of the echoing from our heart of the salvation of our God, that He has paid this price for us. Then he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread or the drink of the cup. For he, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and drinks judgment on himself. That's why so many are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So why is this done? Well, it's because of the cross. The cross was a few things. The cross was painful. Actually, the Romans invented a word called excruciating. That's where the word excruciating comes from. Literally means from the cross. That's what the word means. The cross was shameful. This is not the passion. Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross or the cloth around his private parts. He was naked. It was for criminals. It was a disgrace. Jesus, the Passover lamb like a lamb, led to the slaughter. I want us to read this portion of Scripture together. Can we do that? One that you know so well. If you've been in church any length of time at all. But would you just let it sink in your spirit today? Read this Isaiah passage with me. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Let's read it aloud together. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows yet we considered him stricken by god smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each of us our own way and the lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Do I not have that? We all like sheep have gone astray. All right, I will read it then. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. For us, Christ was brutalized. For us, Christ was crucified. It was the kindness and mercy that God God has that permitted such sacrifice because he first loved us. We did not choose him, but he chose us. Jesus died for your sin. He died for my sin. And so to understand this means what? That we have come into this place, not not just for any other reason, but mainly, the main reason is because we believe that this Jesus, that, that God, the creator God, has given us new life through the sacrifice of his son. When we eat and drink of the cup this morning, it's to remember what Jesus has done. Paul says, when you do this, you're making an announcement. You're making a proclamation. Jesus died for me. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, <coughs> wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. In other words, don't expect a potluck every Sunday. That's not why we're here! Eat if you're hungry at home! Communion is a practice really like no other religion. And we do this way, identify with Jesus. We say we died and and, and that we believe that that he died and that we believe that God who covers, he is the one who covers our sin. And today, The thought of Jesus being the only Savior is overrun in our culture, and this world keeps pressing and pressing Him away. But friends, the, the the fact still remains: the statistics about this church in America are horrible, and they're shocking. How how it's revival or die. And the church is a third of its attendance from just 10 years ago. I, I find it astounding what's going on in America. There's a terrible attrition of pastors and all the things going on in our country. We need resurrection. And the resurrection life of Christ is so many, uh, there's such stony ground. I've heard this and that excuse. I, a friend of a pastor who was a pastor in this community before I got here, which has been a long time ago, he said, yeah, this ground is so rocky. It's, and I believe him. I, I agree. But, you know, I know one who breaks rocks. Lord Jesus, send an awakening to your church. And the church should have been dead many times over. Really, the spread of Islamic armies, the enlightenment, right? I mean, the the political chaos in Europe, the philosophers, Hume, you know, Darwin, Freud, it should have destroyed the church. But God brings to life dead things. That's what God does, that's what resurrection is about. And it's a part of faith, and the belief is in this resurrection. In every instance where Christianity should have been do- done with, it should have been over, there was a resurrection, there was no dying, it was renewed, it was strengthened, it was a resurgence, because God's people began to do the battle cry, and, and trust the word of the Lord says, I will build my church, and the gate, gates of hell won't prevail against it. Friends, if, if there's in everything in this world, Even the great United States of America. All of the great things in this world. All the talent, all the money, all the wealth. Everything will fade away. Jesus says his word will last forever. All the houses, money, and land. Everything. The word of God. The bride of Christ is his baby too. We are in his care. He is in the business of resurrection. You know. We face a world today that is a lot like the first century church, I believe, in this regard. We're just like them. We have the same potential for revival. We, back then, the Romans worshipped their nation, their political leaders. Their, they trusted in their government. Uh, Pontius Pilate wondered, what is truth? I mean, we're hearing this today, right? It is still the questions. The Athenians ran Paul, you know, or Paul answered their questions about the unknown God. We have that today. The Greeks were openly pro gay. The Corinthians were cross dressers. It's all, it all is, there's nothing new. There's nothing new. Um, um, but in the gospel, the blood of Jesus, the same gospel that was then is still the same today. You know what that means? That if we're a child of God, we are part of his church. And, and if your statistics are against you, your health, your money, or your marriage, the issues of life, the blood of Jesus is still true. All have their resurrection blood in Jesus. All of us do. The mind that needs healing, Jesus. There there used to be a song on the radio, if you don't know what to say, just say Jesus. (laughs) If you don't know what to do, just say Jesus. The one struggling with depression, Jesus. The one in hurting relationship, Jesus. The worry over money or life in general, Jesus. This community represents the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made. And that word in Isaiah there, healing, means to men by stitching. In his context, he's talking about salvation. He really is. But I believe that through that atonement, that we have the availability to reach out to the Lord for his touch and healing in our bodies, and our mind, and our spirit, that there is healing in Jesus. So, hopefully this morning, maybe you didn't come to church for the right reason. I don't know. Hopefully this morning, all of us can come to a place where we recognize we just need Jesus. It's that simple. And that this communion that we'll receive together as we pray that you would be, that God would touch your life, that he would save those that are in your life that are unsaved, But more than anything, this moment, it's like Paul gave the instruction to the Corinthians. We are to just exalt Jesus. We are here just to lift him up. Let him do the rest.